You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Amen. Okay. Uh, well, I have to begin the sermon with a confession. Uh, so I am this church's worship director. That's not the confession. Uh, that's on the website. Uh, I have been the worship director now for a uh, Uh, a year and a half, something like that. Prior to that, for about 14 years, really since high school to present, I have been involved in one form or another in worship ministry, leading songs about God in front of people, the people of God, for the glory of God. Uh, That's what I've done for most of my adult life. And, uh, and, and now we're here, and I'm actually getting to preach a sermon on worship in the life of a disciple. And none of that is a confession. The confession is this. Uh, <laughs> strangely enough, despite all that, I have never historically really liked leading worship, which is not the thing you want your worship director to be saying on a stage, but uh, there it is. Uh, now, that, that is no longer the case now. I actually find it to be quite a joy. But for many years, I did not find it uh, to be a joy. In fact, uh, here's another confession for you. I was asked two times uh, to be the worship director at this church, and I turned Rodney down hard the first time. Uh, mainly because, and I told him this, I couldn't think of anything I would rather do less than lead worship. But, Rodney, I said, if you were offering a teaching pastor's position to me, I would be a yes yesterday to that. Consequently, I'm preaching today, and he's not here, so joke's on him. (laughs) I get to do both. Uh, But uh, there it is. Um, Now, God worked on my heart in the season between the first ask and the second, and uh, and now it really is a delight for me uh, to get to lead uh, worship Sunday to Sunday. Uh, But... But looking back, there were a number of reasons why, for me, I, I didn't love this thing we call worship. Uh, there's a handful of reasons, but I think the biggest one for me was, and maybe this describes you too, I've just never felt like I've had a really good sense of what it is. Uh, maybe that's weird for you. Maybe you have a really great handle on it, in which case, please come on up here. Um, but uh, I, I have, for the longest time, felt like I haven't had good handlebars to talk about worship. When I, when I heard sermons on worship uh, growing up, I felt like if, if I heard five sermons on the topic, I heard five different ideas and notions about what it is. I, I never have really got a sense of like a settled uh, firm idea of what we're talking about when we use language like worshiping God. And like in a sermon like this, I want to start it by saying something like, a disciple of Jesus is a worshiper of Jesus. But then as soon as I say that, all these questions come up for me. Like, what do you mean when you say worship? Do you mean that a disciple of Jesus is a person who sings songs to Jesus? Is worship for you and your definition uh, the, the 40 minutes of the 90 minutes we take up of your time on a Sunday morning? Is that what worship is? Is it a set of activities that uh, you perform as an individual? Is this a, a set of activities that a church body performs? Is it the, uh, is it the feelings I feel when I think about God that that is what worship is? I feel like, do you see how it's sort of, 
it's a little bit squishy. The, the word, it's, it's not clear. It's, it's not firm. And I don't like squishy definitions of words. I don't like when they're malleable because that can get the saints into trouble. And I think one of the functions of the local church is to help clarify and draw firm borders around vital, important words within Christendom, within our Christian theology, so that you can have a place to stand firmly on when you're proclaiming truths about God. I think that's one of the functions of what we do here uh, Sunday to Sunday. And so I'm hoping that that happens this morning. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, so the question we're going to be asking ourselves today is what does it mean to worship God? As a disciple of Jesus, we're in this discipleship series, as a disciple of Jesus, what does it mean to worship God? And it's worth saying at the onset, uh, a big thank you to John Piper. Uh, as I have sort of been navigating the issue of worship, I felt like he, more than other folks, has been really clarifying for me and, and settling on what it really means to worship God. And so shout out to Papa P for all of his wisdom. Grateful for you. Papa P. All right. Uh, we're going to jump into the passage and, and, and begin answering our question of what does it mean to worship God? And we're going to be in the book of Philippians chapter three. So if you have a Bible, get it out. If you don't, there's one under your seat, every few seats, uh, and you can be looking at it with me as we go. We're going to be in chapter three, verses one through three right now. I'll read it for us. Chapter three, verse one. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, so Paul is writing this letter to the church of Philippi and he's writing a letter of encouragement to this church. It's a very encouraging letter. And as he's working his way toward the end of his letter, he's now gonna address some concerns he has within that church body because there's some untruths coming into that church at Philippi that he needs to tackle. And those untruths have been coming in by way of this group of people called the Judaizers. Now the Judaizers, they were a group of folks who essentially said this, uh, Jesus alone and faith alone in Jesus is ultimately insufficient to make a person a Christian. Like, it's not enough for you to just say, I have Jesus and I'm good. They would say that is not what makes a person a Christian. There's some bonus features you got to add to that equation for this thing to work. And those bonus features for, for the Judaizers were the obeying of and the keeping of all those Old Testament ceremonial laws. So essentially what the Judaizers were saying was, you gotta become Jewish before you can become Christian, right? That was, and that was a problem uh, for Paul. And so Paul's taking some time here to uh, spell out uh, their error and to address what the, uh, what the life of a disciple of Jesus should really look like. And what's interesting is he frames it all in terms of worship here. And you're going to notice something as we go through this text. Paul is, is recalibrating for the Philippian church what worship on this side of the cross, now that Jesus has come, really is and looks like. And he's, he's radically recalibrating three areas. 
uh, the location of worship is the first one. He's, he's recalibrating the object of worship and he's recalibrating our basis for worship. So those are the areas he's clarifying, the location of worship, the object of worship, and the basis for worship. So let's start by looking at how we are now to think of the location of worship. Verse three, let's look at it again. Here we go, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God. Now this is my second time to preach this text here. The very first time I ever preached at Stonegate, I preached on Philippians 3. Uh, And so there's a little bit of cheating because it's the same text I've studied before, Uh, but we're coming at it from a different angle. But what was interesting for me uh, coming at it the second time was this bit of empathy that kind of rose up in me as I sort of put myself in those first century Christians' positions going like, would it be easy or hard for me to embrace this new understanding of what worship is now that Jesus has come? And and I feel like if we could all just take a moment as we get into the text to sort of get into the sandals of a first century Jewish Christian, I think we'd all sort of have the sense of like, man, there are some hurdles to overcome here. If if you're a, a Jew who's become a Christian and you are learning to walk with Jesus, you, you are having to deal with a whole 3,000 years of history that in some ways flies in the face of what you're being taught now. Like, think about it. For, for 3,000 years, these people have had a very formal, fixed, structured approach to what encountering and worshiping and serving God looked like. Like, think about it. The, the first five books of your Bible the Old Testament Torah, they are completely dedicated to training people how God wants to be worshiped. That's why they exist. It needs to look like this, feel like this, smell like this, have all of these accoutrements around it. It was very formalized. It was very fixed. There was a particular place for worship in the Old Testament. So once they got out of the desert roaming and they finally settled in Jerusalem, Jerusalem became the location where one was to worship God. In fact, there's a whole section of your uh, psalms called the Psalms of Ascent that were written to be sung on the way on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God. Like if you wanted to engage the living God meaningfully, there was a place and it was over there and you need to get on your donkey and go there. So there, there was a fixed place, but it wasn't even just a city. It was the temple within the city of Jerusalem. Right, Solomon built the temple and that's where God said, I'm gonna meet with my people in the temple in Jerusalem. But it wasn't just in the temple, right? It was in a room in the temple, the Holy of Holies, a very sacred place for the Jews. And within that room in the Holy of Holies, in the temple in Jerusalem is where God said he would meet with his people. But it wasn't just there, right? Because inside the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark, there was the mercy seat. And that very particular, like three square foot space is where God said, I'll meet with my people. Hovering down above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of Yahweh, in the city of Jerusalem, in the country of Israel. And it's over there and you have to go to it to meet with God. There's a very specific location in your Old Testament, but it wasn't just a specific location. There was a particular time for worship detailed. 
right? Like Sabbath days were really holy and you did special things on those Sabbath days, festival days, Passover, Feast of Booths, uh, Pentecost, calendar-specific sacrifices and offerings. Like there was a time to worship God that God ordained for his people. There was a particular people who could do all of that, right? The line of Abraham, it was a bloodline, the Jewish race of people, Israel, those people were the worshipers of Yahweh. But even within them, there was a subset, another group of folks called the Levites. And they were the priests that could actually enter into the presence of God in the temple to worship on behalf of the people. So you see how particular and how narrow this is. But it wasn't just a particular place or time or people. It was particular acts. Not this animal, this animal, right? Not this lamb with spots. This lamb is what you sacrifice. Not that wardrobe, this wardrobe, right? You had to have a certain garb to enter in God's presence. It had to be uh, adorned with certain jewels and certain colors and certain tassels. And you had to dress a certain way and look a certain way and proceed a certain way in order to worship God. That is how the Old Testament frames worship. It's very particular, specific, organized, fixed, location. That's how the Old Testament dictates that we worship God. Now, just compare for a moment that with what we get in our New Testament. Because it's a completely different flavor, right? And in fact, this is one of the reasons that I've had such a hard time over the years settling on worship because I read the Old Testament and I read the fixed notions of things and then I get to the New Testament and I'm like, well, you're all over the place. It just feels in some ways m messier for a guy who likes his systems and his organized boxes of things, right? I'll show you what I mean. Let's, let's look at a few texts. And I want, I, we're just gonna look at some texts in our New Testament that use worshipy language, okay? And, and I want you to try to pin down, based on what the text of the New Testament says, how God is ordaining worship this side of the cross, the location for worship, the feel, all of that. Let's look at a few texts here. Let's go to Romans 12.1. Paul's writing and he says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what for Paul here is worship? Well, apparently everything I do with my body, all of my life and all that comes from me is for Paul, a spiritual act of worship that is acceptable to God. Okay, that's one way. Let's look at another verse. Let's go to Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There, there we are again, borrowing from that Old Testament worship language. But what are the sacrifices here? Right now, in this passage, it's giving that a generous heart who extends and gives to those in need, that is a sacrifice that's pleasing to God in the New Testament. Okay, okay, let's keep going. Romans 15, 15, and 16. But on some points I've written to you to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So don't miss the meaning there. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that 
as Gentiles come to faith, as the gospel goes out through your priestly service and they get saved and they come into the fold of Christ, that the actual physical people of the Gentiles themselves who've been saved, that is an offering, an acceptable sacrifice to God. That is part of worship for Paul here. That's just three verses. If that feels a little all over the place and scattered for you, it's because it is. It's all over the place. It's really hard to pin down what the New Testament is gonna call worship formally. It's spread out over a lot of activities, right? It's spread out over a lot of places, a lot of locations. It's spread over uh, different types of people, Jews and Gentiles. It's hard to get a really cut and dry definition of uh, like we get in our Old Testament of what worship is. And then Jesus comes along and brings, I think, such clarity to all of this confusion uh, in a moment in the Gospels. So I want to look at one more text in our New Testament before we jump back to Philippians. Uh, I want to look at John 4, because Jesus has an encounter with the Samaritan woman and sheds an incredible amount of light on what we're talking about, relocating worship. So let's look at this for a minute. Uh, the woman at the well, uh, he encounters her and they have a discussion. And at some point she says to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Okay, so she's... she's what just happened, by the way, is he called her out on being a sinner, right? And she, in typical sinner fashion, changes the subject and wants to talk about theology with the guy. It's like, uh, how, about, how about worship? Uh, where do you guys worship again? You, you're a Jerusalem guy, right? That's what she does. And look what Jesus does in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father? But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in where? Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The temple of God for Jesus is no longer in Jerusalem now that he's come. It's in the chests of the saints. Do you see that? He's clarifying for her, you, you think that you have to go over here to engage with me, that you have to take a pilgrimage to meet with God? Let me tell you something. True worshipers don't worship God in a fixed location in Jerusalem anymore. True worshipers worship God in the spirit. And the spirit indwells every person who trusts in me for salvation. The temple of God is in our chests now. And therefore, everything and every place becomes worship. That's what Paul's saying in Philippians 3, isn't it? For we are the circumcision who worship by, or some translations have it rendered, in the spirit of God. The, the true worshipers worship in the spirit of God. So listen to this, for the Christian, worship does not primarily take place out there somewhere, but in here in the spirit, and therefore every space is sacred and we can worship anywhere. Do you guys see that? It's complete freedom for worship for the Christian. Do you know what this means? It means that Monday morning, 
matters just as much as Sunday morning. That's one of the things it means. If you thought that somehow you coming here this morning got you spiritual bonus points with God, like he's super eager for you to get in your 45 of 52 Sundays a year, right? You get a few nap Sundays, and, but you by and large get your bulk of your Sundays coming here and that somehow is worship for God. God's saying, no, no, every moment is worship of me. Every moment counts. Sunday service is sacred, yes, but so is putting your kids to bed Friday night. And so is how, do you, how you talk to your husband Tuesday morning before work. And so is that time you spend watching Netflix or reading a book or hanging with friends. And so are the parties you go to or don't go to. And so is every other moment of your life. It's not that, that for Paul, Sunday morning is somehow devalued but that every moment for the Christian is now rightly valued as being precious and sacred and vital to worship. So he's recalibrating the location. It's not just someplace out there. It's in here, in the spirit, in truth. And therefore worship is everywhere. Do you see that? But Paul isn't done. He's gonna clarify for us, not just the location of worship, but the object of worship. So let's go back to verse three again. Verse three, for we are the circumcision who worship by or in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Now this isn't exactly uh, mind blowing. Spoiler alert, Christians worship Jesus. That's kind of our thing, right? Been doing it for a while. Sometimes we get off course and there's a correction and off course and correction, but the, the staple of Christianity is Christ at the center, right? Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus is the focal point for the saints. In fact, you even see this in, in architecture in, uh, throughout church history. If you go into virtually any medieval church in Europe uh, right now, the, the first thing that's gonna happen when you walk in those doors, what happens? Your eyes go up. Well, why? Because all of the ornate fixtures and design and spires and tapestries and icons are all north of you. The ceilings are incredibly high and it's built that way to force our gaze up as if to say, this moment is about Jesus and not about you. Take your eyes off yourself, brother, sister. Look at Christ. That was the point of even architecture. That's the point of what we do here. One thing we are committed to as leadership in this church is this. We wanna do a really faithful job of setting Jesus before you plainly in all of his beauty, Sunday to Sunday. That's, that's what we are eager to do as uh, leadership in this church. We think that we couldn't do anything more important than give you a sense Sunday to Sunday that this time is about glorifying Christ, not ourselves. In fact, that's the language that Paul uses right here, right? He says, and glory in Christ Jesus. So he's telling us the way we engage Christ Jesus. And what is that way? Glory. Now that word is interesting in the Greek, it's this word kalkeomai, kalkeomai. And that word, 
appears 24 other times in your New Testament as the word to boast, to boast in. So that what Paul is saying here is Jesus is the center point object of our worship and what our worship looks like is boasting in him. Or maybe to put it in some modern vernacular for us, you could think about it like this. The main job of a disciple of Jesus in worshiping Jesus is bragging on Jesus with our life, with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions, that everything we say and do and think is in an effort to tell the world how great is our God. That is the goal of worship. It is kalkeomai in Christ. It is boasting in Christ. It is bragging on our Lord. That's the goal. But now there's something else to be addressed here. Because in some ways, and I don't want you to miss this, that, that's what we're doing on the surface, but every doing has underneath it an idea that's motivating it, right? Nobody just does stuff without something driving them to do it, right? Ideas have consequences. And so for Paul, he's gonna wanna go one layer deeper with us. We're not quite yet at the bottom of what New Testament worship is. We have this idea of it's, if it's a spirit-indwelled person, right? A spirit-filled person who brags on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, but there's still another layer there that we have to get to. And it's the most precious layer of this whole thing for Paul. And the way we're gonna get there is by asking this question. What produces our ability to glory in Christ? What is the thing that produces in us the ability to brag on him? And for that, we're gonna go back to verse three. There's a lot in verse three. It says this, we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God or in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now that's a negative way of saying the positive, which is, and put every confidence in Jesus, right? But for Paul, that word confidence doesn't really capture everything he's trying to say. And for you, maybe you're hearing that and you're like, I'm still not seeing what, what you're talking about is like the basis of um, this new worship, what, what is motivating my bragging. Confidence doesn't really help me get there. We're, remember, we're trying to answer the question, what is the new basis for the worship of Jesus? And so Paul's gonna help clarify it by, by creating his argument. And what he does is he's gonna lay out in the next handful of verses all the things that he could, if he wanted to, put his confidence in. Like for instance, he says, I'm a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I come from the line of Abraham. I'm a Benjaminite, right? I'm of the right lineage. I'm incredibly moral. In fact, he says, my morality was essentially perfect, He's gonna talk about who raised him, who trained him, Gamaliel. He's gonna talk about his, his pedigree. He's gonna talk about all these things as things he could find his confidence in. And then he's gonna give us verse seven. And look at verse seven with me. Verse seven says this, but, so he's contrasting all the things he could have given confidence to. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So substitute for a minute gain for confidence. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for Christ. Let's, let's replace that with the notion of confidence to help us make sense of this. Whatever I put my confidence in, whatever those things were, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Verse eight, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Did you see it? He's, he's mingling some words together. He's mingling words like confidence with gain, with worth. He's, he's trying to give us a sense of this. Disciples glory in Christ Jesus and they do not find their surpassing worth or confidence in fleshly things like our abilities or our talents or our morality or our pedigree. We don't find our worth in that. We find our surpassing worth in simply knowing Jesus. Beautiful Jesus. The basis for our ability to glory in Jesus is seeing Jesus as totally satisfying. There's the basis. The basis for our ability to glory in, to brag on Christ is the day that you discover that he is the greatest treasure in the universe. That he's not just a get out of hell free card for you, but he's everything. He satisfies the deepest longings of your soul. He's everything for you. Or maybe to say it another way, you glorify best what you enjoy most. You glorify best what you enjoy most. So I was 13 and I was in seventh grade in Miss Wright's class and she presented a challenge to the class. To the class. There was a writing challenge that happened. Uh, the anthology of young poets was uh, due this year. The 1999 edition was about to be published. And she was taking poem submissions. And whoever won this poem submission contest got published in this book. And so I submitted a poem and it won and it got in. And so my mom has probably the only copy of the anthology of young poets, 1999 edition at her house, hardback. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> And uh, for whatever reason, I still remember this poem, uh, every line. I don't know why it's stuck in my brain, but it's there. And with your permission, I'd like to perform it for you. Okay, I'm going to do it anyways. <clears throat> it's called An Ode to Food. <clears throat> food is good in every way. Come rain or shine or night or day. Apple strudel, ham and cheese for food. I'll get down on my knees. Call me chunky. Call me fat. All I want is a helping of that. My eating habits may be rude, but I'm just in it for the food. There it was. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all night. No, appreciate it. Appreciate it. It's big time. 
It's amazing this church nabbed me up after that got published, you know, it's crazy. I wrote about what my heart most wanted. And what my heart most wanted was a bean burrito and some peanut butter and apple strudel and ham and cheese. And so when I sat down and I thought about what are the things that come to my mind in my pen when I'm celebrating something in a poem, it was toaster strudel and it was food and it was that type of stuff. We glorify best what we enjoy most. Or as Piper puts it with respect to God, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Do you see that? So now we've come to the bottom of what inspires our bragging, this spirit-filled bragging on Jesus, and it is a soul delight in Jesus. And so now we're ready for a, a full definition based on the New Testament of what worship is this side of the cross. And we're gonna have it on the screen for you, and it's this. Worship in the life of a disciple is this. A soul filled with God's spirit bragging on Jesus based on seeing him as the ultimate treasure in all of life. A soul filled with God's spirit bragging on Jesus based on seeing him with the eyes of our hearts as the ultimate treasure in all of life. That is for us what worship is. That's what it means. And so how does this play out for us? If that's our working definition, how does this play out? Well, there's a couple ways I think it plays out. And I want to talk about them both in terms of what's happening here on Sundays. Because we have a sense now of everything for the Christian is worship. Every area of life, every time, every location, throughout the week. But I have a particular burden for when it comes to Sunday mornings with you guys. As I pray for you guys week to week, I see a couple applications here that I want to tease out with you. And the first one is this. If that definition is true, then we need to stop dying on the little hills of style preference. If that definition is true, we need to stop dying on the little hills of style preference. So now what do I mean by that? Well, you might be here this morning and you might be saying to me, Jimmy, look, bro, I am a high church guy and that's just the way it is. I like my windows stained. I like my hymns sung in Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth-like language. And I like a lot of standing and kneeling, right? And that for me is what resonates. And what happens Sunday to Sunday at Stonegate, if I'm being honest, brother, just isn't resonating for me, man. I need a little bit more of that high church business. To which I would say, that's okay. You can have a preference. It is not unbiblical or ungodly for you to come liking one thing over another. We all grew up in different uh, cultural settings and different vibes, different churches. And so you probably have some preference that are going to be different from me or from Kevin or Rodney or Ryan or any of these guys. And that's okay. But that is not the measuring stick our Bible gives for proper worship. 
And so we have to be able to come open-handed on a Sunday morning. We have to become more open-handed with our preferences. The measuring stick is, rather, was the beauty of Christ displayed for me through his word? Was Jesus being magnified rightly from this stage? Was that happening? Because if so, I can pry my hands open from those preferences that I brought. Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not high church guy. Maybe you are, maybe you're the charismatic guy, right? And you rolled in here this morning with a praise flag and a tambourine in your back pocket and you're ready to get your shit about a Honda on and you are just super grieved when worship does not last three and a half hours, right? Something is wrong if we're not singing until we're sweating and falling on the ground, right? And if that's you, hey, that's okay too. You can come with preferences. You can come. I get wanting to come into worship and having space to linger and enjoy God and hear from, like that's, that is good and that's right and that's okay. But what I'm saying is, and what I think Paul is saying here in the text is, don't die on hills that your New Testament isn't dying on. The better questions we should be asking is, does the substance of our service magnify the beauty of Christ in the gospel? Are we setting the triune God before you guys week after week and inviting you to marvel? Does the word of God have a prominent place in our service? Like if these things are at play, we can pry our hands open from some of our style preferences and go, you know what? It's okay. It's okay that I don't completely resonate with what's happening culturally here because the most important things are being gotten right. You see that? So I think that's one of the applications for us as a church family. I think there's another application for us as a church family too. And it's this. We come on Sundays now with delight as our goal and not duty. We come on Sundays with delight as our goal and not duty. So just track with me this reasoning for a minute. If worship is a spirit-filled soul bragging on Jesus and that bragging is produced when we finally see with the eyes of our hearts how beautiful and awesome and great is our God, if that's what produces our ability to boast in Jesus, to celebrate Jesus, to brag on him, if that is what produces that, then we need to be chasing that. We need to be chasing a soul satisfaction in Christ. And that's not something we bring, that's something we get. You see, we no longer come primarily to give something to God on a Sunday morning. We primarily come to get something from God. This isn't primarily a time where we're emphasizing our offerings to God. This is primarily a time where we are acknowledging the fragrant offering of the death burial and resurrection of Jesus for us. And when we do that, our hearts awaken in worship, real worship to God. This means, by the way, that there's only really a couple things that, that should be happening when we begin singing. You should either be singing this morning because you're convinced he's satisfying Right? Because you have seen, tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you just need to say yes to that. And that's why you sing. 
Or you should be singing this morning to become convinced that he's satisfying. And this is something I think we miss a lot. I think we think I gotta wait till the feelings start bubbling. I gotta wait till I feel that special spirit movement and then I'm gonna raise my hands and sing out to God. Can I tell you that is not how it works. God is worthy to be praised even if you don't feel the warm fuzzies. And a truth is a truth, even if you're not bubbling over with joy at that truth. So how do we become convinced he's satisfying? Because truthfully, guys, I know, I know that many of us are coming in here Sunday, myself included sometimes, just not feeling filled to the brim with, with a soul gaze of Jesus where our hearts are just saying, yes, give me, give me a five-hour praise song. Like our hearts often aren't doing that. We're coming in from a hard week with family drama, relational drama, sin drama, financial drama, struggles, burdens, doubts, all sorts of things. When you come in that door, we know you come with that. It's true. So how, how do we become convinced in worship that he's satisfying? I just wanna present two ideas for you that I think will serve you well this morning and that I hope you can walk in. Number one is we listen to the saints. Stonegate will never tell you from this stage, this will never be something you hear at Stonegate. Why don't you stay home next week? Why don't you stay home, podcast the sermon, it'll be out at noon, put on a Bethel album and just have yourself a little Devo. It'll be great. You can do it in your bedroom. You never even have to get out of your PJs, right? Why are you never gonna hear that from us at Stonegate? Because you need to be next to her and him hearing them sing the truths of God with you. The saints need to hear the saints sing truth and believe truth. We need to be around each other. I need to hear my neighbors singing, my God is awesome, heals me when I'm broken, strength when I've been weakened, forever he will reign. Is that true? Like, is that, is that true that you think he's awesome and that he, he strengthened you when you were weak? Because brother, I needed to hear you say that. I needed to know somebody believes that this morning. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And I all will sing how great, how great is our God. Is he great? Because sister, I don't feel like he's great this week, but when you say he's the name above all names, something in my heart stirs and it helps me believe it. That's why you're next to your neighbor in here. That's why we are a Christian church gathering to sing because we need to hear the saints sing. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When you're singing, you're singing to each other. Do you see that? So when you sing, you need to sing loud because I need to hear you. I need to hear you. I need to be encouraged that you're trying to believe the same truth I am today, even though we're struggling. That's why we come together. We listen to the saints. And then finally, we affirm unfelt truths. We affirm unfelt truths. 
Because not everything you sing on this screen, you're going to feel in a moment. But it's true nonetheless. I remember I was at a show, I was on tour a few years ago, and the guy who was coming out with me on tour, uh, we were hanging out during sound check. We were at a festival, so me and him weren't sound checking. It was the opening band. And the band that was on stage was a gospel band that was singing. And they were singing the song, Break Every Chain, as they were uh, warming up. And uh, so as they were rehearsing, we were out in the audience watching them. And I was standing and my buddy was sitting over here. And, uh, you know, they're just singing out, there is power in the name of Jesus. And the band's going and the choir's singing, there is power in the name of Jesus. And I look over at my friend who's sitting in the back row. And you just got to know something about this guy. He is as he is as far away from gospel music as you could imagine, right? This is a pasty dude who thinks the acoustic guitar is a little bit edgy, okay? This is not his moment where he's like, give me that power. This is not his moment. And so I look over at him. This is the first time I'm ever hearing this song. I look over at him and I just remember his head's down to break every chain. They're singing, break every chain, break every chain. And he just shoots his hand up like this with his head down. To break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. And I just thought, that's not, that's not what I expected. And I talked to him afterwards because I know that wasn't his vibe. And I said, dude, tell me about that. What was that about? And he, he said, Jimmy, when they're singing something true about Jesus, it is right and necessary for me to amen that. And so I'm going to, even though I didn't feel that vibe. And then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, and you know what's interesting? When my hands go up to say yes and amen to that and my voice rises to sing that song, most of the time what happens for me, Jimmy, is my heart that was not there in the moment catches up with my hands. And I begin believing and feeling the things that I stepped out on on faith affirming when I started to sing. Do you see that? There is power in that moment. There's power in you in these next moments when we start singing in worship. There's power in you being able to say, I don't feel a ton of warm fuzzies right now, but that is true about my God. He is awesome. He is worthy and holy and righteous and true. And he saved me. He rescued me from the grave. He defeated death on my behalf and I get to be with him forever. So you know what? I am gonna sing this out in heart. You better catch up with me. That's what we're doing today. And that's what we're doing every Sunday. And I'm challenging you as your worship director at this church, press into that. Maybe you're the, the introvert or maybe you weren't feeling it this Sunday or maybe things were crazy for you this week. Press in and watch the spirit of God surprise you with joy in God so that you can finally brag and boast in God like he commands. That's worship. That's worship. Let's pray. I'm gonna give you a second. Just meditate on those truths. Ask God to help you believe. Ask God to give you the faith to see him as truly lovely. 
Ask him to give you the courage to worship him like he asks from the heart, in the spirit, full of truth. Father, you have sent your son to die and you have blessed us in doing that. God, we thank you. Your church family here on the south side of Dallas in Stonegate Church says thank you for Jesus. He is our treasure. And even when we don't feel it, God, we acknowledge this morning, he is the treasure, the aim, the goal, the fixed point of our worship. And we love him and we want to love him and we want to want to love him. Would you help us, God? By the power of your spirit, would you help us to see and believe and worship you like only the saints of God can? We love you and trust you to answer these prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.